You're listening to the Opportunity Zones podcast. Get ready to grow your wealth with insights and strategies for qualified opportunity fund investors. And now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. On today's episode, we're discussing build to rent strategies in Opportunity Zones. And joining me on the show today to discuss this strategy are Leo Backer of Pinnacle Partners and Jason Joseph of Trilogy Investment Company. Gentlemen, thanks for joining the show. Welcome. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Jimmy. Yeah, great to have both of you on the show today. We're going to dive into this build to rent strategy in a moment. But first, I wanted to take a, a minute or two to introduce each of you to the audience. Leo, I'm going to turn to you first. Pretty likely my audience of high net worth investors, advisors, and other Opportunity Zone stakeholders are probably already familiar with Pinnacle Partners, as you and your partner, Jeff Feinstein, have been featured on this show in the past and also our OZ Pitch Day events. But for those who may not be familiar with Pinnacle Partners, can you introduce us to who you are and what your role in the OZ industry is? Happy to. And thanks again for having us, Jimmy. And good to see everybody today. Yeah, great to be back. Um, Pinnacle Partners was formed about five years ago as a real estate investment company focused on investing in Opportunity Zone projects specifically. And since our inception, we funded 14 uh, single asset OZ projects on the West Coast and now throughout the Mountain States and Sunbelt States, primarily multifamily. Um, we're extremely continue to be bullish on the opportunity zone, you know, regulations that are that are out there now and and really bullish on new development, even in these struggling markets, which we'll talk a little bit about today. But again, great, great to be here and and glad to talk more about our build to rent strategy with Jason. Good. Yeah, we'll dive into that in a minute. Jason, let's turn to you now. Same question for you. Uh, what can you tell us about Trilogy Investment Company? This is your first uh, time on on my show. So I don't know if, how familiar my audience may be with you and your firm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Leo, thanks for also for having us on. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, I'm Jason Joseph, a, a CEO and managing partner for Trilogy Investment Company. We are a fully integrated, vertically integrated uh, build to rent operator. And what is critical to know is it is specifically to purpose built um, BTR communities. So founded just shy of three years ago, um, hyperbolic growth, um, given that it's a new asset class. Um, and we see this as sort of out one of any one in a very long um, couple decade process that build to rent um, has started in its infancy now and now in hyperbolic growth as a, as a derivative product of traditional multifamily. So we have just shy of 3,000 um, lots with about 700 homes and lots under construction right now. Uh, we are in seven states and we are headquartered in Hotlanta, Georgia, uh, just north in a suburb called Alpharetta. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Great intro there, Jason. I love the baseball reference. It kind of reminded me, took me back to uh, the early days of the Opportunity Zone industry when everybody was saying, hey, it's still the the top of the first inning here for Opportunity right. Zones. I, I don't know where we are with Opportunity Zones right now. I feel like maybe we're in the... Uh, the bottom of the fifth and the starting pitches are about to get yanked, but we still got some, <laughs> some, some room to, some room to grow still. And uh, that's right. I don't know if, if, if uh, Congress extends opportunity zones legislation, maybe we'll go into extra innings. We'll see what happens though. But uh, let's uh, let's talk more about um, BTR in a moment. Leo, turning back to you, you touched briefly on uh, Pinnacle Partners, your, your past projects, uh, you're currently raising capital, I believe, or, and deploying capital through your OZ Fund 8, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that's a $100 million fund with curated multifamily projects 
in opportunity zones and select markets. What's the uh, what's the update there? And did I did I miss any details there? Did I get anything wrong? No, you're you're spot on. You are spot on. Yeah. So maybe to to roll back quickly. So you know, from our inception, we funded ten single asset opportunity zone projects, primarily multifamily, podium build construction, two adaptive reuse buildings, um, and workforce affordable housing, market rate housing, and student housing really is the product type where our single asset projects are invested in. And when we launched our multi-asset fund eight, um, we per and those projects are all on the West Coast, by the way, in Washington State and Northern and Southern California. Several of our investors asked us if we would consider doing a multi-asset fund outside of those locales because they're heavily invested in those markets. So we purposely curated Opportunity Zone Fund 8 for Pinnacle, which was primarily focused in the mountain states throughout the Sunbelt markets. And our thesis was to continue with multifamily only for that fund. And we quickly locked in a project in Denver, Colorado, which we're happy to say is now under construction. Um, and we also are in Avondale, Arizona with Jason, which will soon be under construction. We'll talk about that in a minute. In Charlotte, North Carolina, also with Jason and Bill Torrent, which we are under construction, and then in Nashville. So that fund is, we're still raising capital for that fund. We've raised approximately 65 of our 100 million target to raise. And that fund will be open through through the middle of next year. And your fund and and, and your entire fund platform throughout the course of Pinnacle Partners' uh, history in doing opportunity zone developments has largely been multifamily, as you mentioned a few minutes ago. But now you're shifting into a different subclass of multifamily, build to rent specifically. Why the strategy shift? Yeah, good good question. So I would say maybe six months ago, nine months ago, we were really having a hard time underwriting multifamily podium build projects. You know, the cost of construction, interest rates, you know, even with rent growth continuing, though it was going in the markets we were focused in, it was becoming more and more of a challenge. And I think we were very fortunate to already lock in our projects that are under construction today, but new projects that we we're looking to add to our fund, we were struggling with. So we made a conscious decision to focus solely on uh, garden style apartments, which are more predictable because you're surface parked, you know, lower rise type buildings. Um, and we looked at student housing as well as a sub market that we felt was was pretty hot and still is. We're very interested in student housing. But honestly, we didn't know much about build to rent. And when we met Jason and his team, Jason's brother-in-law is actually in Seattle and a friend of ours is how we actually met. And we learned more about the product type that he was building with Build to Rent because it's a newer product type. You know, Jason, I'll talk a lot, lot more about it. And we really looked at it as an adjunct to garden style. You know, garden style is your, you know, horizontal multifamily. And what Build to Rent is really just is an adjunct of that. It just happens to be townhomes and single family Build to Rent communities. So we just think it's a more predictable cost delivery and for us, long-term growth strategy that fits well in our fund. And then you're going to hear in a minute about a new fund that we're launching with Jason purely for Build to Rent. Good. Well, we'll get to that in a minute, but I do want to I do want to hear more about what Build to Rent is. So Jason, turning back to you now, really simple question. What is Build to Rent exactly? How does it differ from other residential development strategies and why 
is now the time to focus on build to rent? Why is it the top of the first inning? Uh, it's a it's a great question, and and I think Leo did a really 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 good job, um, sort of introducing the concept of build to rent. Really, and we like to call it in our office as a derivative or sub asset class within the residential for rent um, um, asset base. We'll call it. so you, so multifamily garden style, whether it's high rise, mid rise, or, or garden itself. Um, when you actually look at the construction cost methodology tied to everything Leo has historically invested in on the multi side versus residential. Um, that one differential of building a home versus building a commercial building um, ends up lowering your cost per square foot. So to Leo's point, the initial reason why we got into it was one, um, residential housing isn't going anywhere. Uh, everyone knows that we're in, and depending on on the news channel or the data that you look at, um, somewhere between 3.8 to 6.5 million um, house, houses, there's a shortage of in the U.S. So if you just look at its, at its basis, um, we are never going to have an issue of continuing to build. And then all of a sudden you have an oversupply. Um, now there are challenges um, of getting these deals done. And we can talk about that in a second, but when you look at it at its core, there are five critical components. One is construction costs. And in some instances, you're talking 30 to 40% of hard cost reduction going to a home. Um, two, we found that the renter profile um, of a build to rent community was a step up, meaning household income and household formation um, was much, much higher. When you look at the data, you're talking household incomes of 65 to 120,000 um, relative to something that's much less on a traditional garden style apartment. And what we also liked is, is the stickiness of the lease. So when you look at purpose-built communities, the average apartment lease, once again, depending on the data that you read, is hovering somewhere around a year to 1.2 years on an apartment. And with a BTR dedicated community, you're looking at somewhere close to two years, 2.6 to 3.2, depending on the region of the U.S. So all of a sudden you're looking at turnover costs. You're looking at the creation of the social aspects of building community, investing in the community. And lo and behold, sort of fourth and fifth, which are financially driven, you're looking at a premium rent relative to the same square footage of an apartment comparing a 1,250 square foot three bed apartment or a 1,250 square foot townhome. Um, now you're looking at a premium rental product. So now if your chunk rent is higher, your renter base um, from a demographic um, household income is higher, the length of the lease term is higher, your construction cost is lower, and the exit cap rate that you're looking at is equivalent to multifamily. Well, then all of a sudden you're looking at it going, the thesis makes a ton of sense and gives us an opportunity of addressing a real need where you have millennial, you have retirees, you have young professionals that are looking for the benefits, we'll call it, of apartment living, the maintenance-free lifestyle of apartment living um, with a backyard, with a garage, and with a community that's associated with um, what would look like a for-sale neighborhood gives us an opportunity of delivering now a neighborhood of like-minded renters by choice that are now in there. I'll, I'll end with this topic is that what we didn't anticipate happening when we got into the business and a lot, and there is a misconception of this, that built to rent is thriving because of the interest rate environment. Um, the interest rate environment for purchasing homes has actually created a third bucket of new renters. Imagine over a 90 to 120 day period, and the data shows 26 to 29 million people overnight could no longer afford that 400 to $450,000 home that they're attempting to buy. So we were in the business beforehand, the markets accepted built to rent beforehand. And now all of a sudden you have this swath 
of people actually that are qualified home buyers that want the exact home that we're building and that we're giving them an opportunity to rent at a significantly reduced cost relative to a mortgage. So that's actually added to the benefits of build to rent. And how does this differ from SFR or single family rentals? Are these are Great question. these are a little bit different because they're not they're not standalone houses, they're they're townhomes or or and there's there's a misconception that I'm so glad. And this is where I get to um um out one of any one. And we're still defining um, nomenclature. I mean, think about what you just said. And what's now happening, the capital markets are now looking and saying, okay, we have multifamily, we have SFR, and SFR are single family rentals, and it's called scattered to where in 2007, 2008, 2009, when there were lots of for sale neighborhoods, PVC farms you heard about, and all the inventory of homes, and we had an oversupply, um, that was when that asset class was introduced. And imagine one or two homes in a neighborhood, um, eight to nine homes scattered on a block. These are truly individual, call it MLS listed homes that are purchased and then put in place for rent. And normally they're contained inside of a neighborhood, to where you have for sale homeowners that own their own homes with individual homes scattered throughout. And a BTR is literally a purpose-built, build-to-rent neighborhood. The entire neighborhood, there's 120 homes, and it's agnostic to whether it's a townhome or a single-family detached home. It's a purpose-built neighborhood that is, to the, to the naked eye, driving in, driving around, um, looks and feels just like a for sale neighborhood. However, 100% of the homes are for rent. Got it. Okay. So it's more of the, uh, the community, the neighborhood itself, as opposed right. to, you know, a house here, a house there. That's exactly that right. Sense. That's exactly uh, right. Who, who are the residents typically? They, you, you mentioned that they're typically higher income. Are they, are they, are they workforce or do they have families? Are they a little bit Great older? question. Great question. We're, we take this approach slightly different in that we believe that the market um, determines the renter profile. And the renter profile determines the type of home that we're going to build. So if you're in Augusta, Georgia, um, the, the demographic is going to look different where you may have more of a workforce housing, where you've got teachers, police officers, et cetera, where you're addressing a real need with that particular household formation and household income versus the city of Avondale in Arizona, like a project we're doing with Pinnacle, where you've got 107 detached homes where the demographic is going to sitting around 80 to 120,000 based upon what's there. And so to your point, um, the big chunk buckets are millennials. Um, single, um, uh, young, young family household formation where you're looking at typically um, dual income um, with um, one plus children. And then you're looking at 55 plus early retirees to retirees, depending on, and that generally is in more of a coastal or sunbelt like Arizona. Hmm, got it. Uh, well, let's talk more about the markets. I'm curious which markets you're in. And Leo, I want to turn back to you first. Are the markets that you're in for this new BTR strategy, OZ fund, are they different than the markets than you preferred for your previous funds? Are they the same? I want, I want to hear more about where you like to uh, invest your OZ capital in this new BTR strategy, Leo. Yeah, great question. So in our fund eight, um, we're in the exact same markets that we were targeting for multifamily. So no different. And when we met Jason, which was, which was ironic, and we love telling this story around opportunity zones, and we told him what we were doing. We said, we're 
investing in opportunity zones in these key markets, which he happened to be in, right? He had sites already tied up or owned in the Sun Belt and Mountain States that we were looking at, such as Colorado, Denver area, um, Arizona, you know, other, other markets we already are in. So he looked at his portfolio and said, wow, I didn't know Avondale, Arizona was an opportunity zone. So he kind of looked at his map and he said, here's three or four that happen to be in opportunity zones. And then we picked the one that was in a submarket that we knew we were looking at for our fund. So Phoenix, for instance, we've probably looked at more multifamily buildings that we tried to underwrite in the greater Phoenix area than just about any market in the country. And we just, just couldn't get to the returns we were looking for. You know, we were always looking for market rate, not premium rate um, and or workforce housing. When we saw Jason and he showed us the site in Avondale, Arizona, it met exactly what we were looking for, right down the fairway for, and then we learned more about the product type and we got even more interested. So, so for Fund 8, you know, we are in Charlotte, which we'll talk about in a minute, which also is a target market for the fund and in Avondale, Arizona. And Jason, same question for you, because you, you sure. do some stuff outside of where Pinnacle Partners is developing their OZ deals, which markets do you like for build-to-rent communities? Sure. Three years ago, um, when sort of the germination of Trilogy, uh, we had put together um, an algorithm that basically took migration trends of of U.S. population um, into certain states um, and also layered in 38 critical variables related to job growth, related to employment, related to household formation, demographic data, et cetera. And what's interesting now, fast forward three years, if you pinpoint the top 25 markets for build to rent, it sits within the Southeast across into the Southwest, which they call, quote, the Sunbelt region, quote, the smile states, whatever it may be. So we currently sit um, in the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, um, into Alabama, and then hopscotch over into the great state of Texas, Arizona, and soon to be Colorado to Leo's point. And when you see what's going on, predominantly in job growth, um, great weather, typically four seasons um, and or two or one if you're in Arizona. But if you if you look at what's happening with whether it's the current political climate um, being pro-business, um, whether it's um, um, what type of investment is both the municipal, meaning the local municipality and the U.S. federal government investing into like Arizona, as an example, with Phoenix and the CHIPS Act and what's going on with the manu- manufacturing and what's happening there. And then likewise, as you spin that into Texas, same things are happening there as you spin it in. So you have this massive migration over the last number of years into these particular states. And what it means is they're seeking home ownership and they're seeking the ability in lieu of home ownership could be transition, um, could be they've been priced out of the market, could be the interest rate environment, could be, and this is thematic to Trilogy, uh, Jamie, this is important, um, to the millennial group, um, their equity is actually the flexibility of moving. Um, they're not interested in necessarily, and I'm generalizing some, some are, but if you generalize and just see the data, the flexibility, we always say your equity is your flexibility to where it's not about wanting to be in a, in a community for three to five years and investing. It's, oh, wow, there's a new opportunity. There's a work from home opportunity where I can go to Korea um, and still work, you know, out of California. You know, there's ways for them and they want the flexibility um, and not being tied down to a home mortgage. So it's really created an interesting opportunity there as well. That's really interesting. That last point, that just that demographic shift or that that mindset shift 
of uh, right. generations, how, how, how millennials think about home ownership and how it does kind of <laughs> tie you down to a location, which, right. which, which you needed 20 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, you're going to work at the same company every day for, for most of your career, or, you know, you do right. okay within the same city, but now you can work from anywhere for anywhere. Right. It seems like, so yeah, that, uh, that flexibility um, does come in quite handy. I'm sure. Leo, I want to turn back to you and, and talk about how this strategy fits within the opportunity zone dynamic. Why do you like BTR? Well, I think we know why you like BTR. We've talked about a lot of the the uh, the, the the trends behind it, but but why specifically within an opportunity zone strategy? Absolutely. Um, you know, again, all of our underwriting, like a lot of firms like us do, you know, we are investing in opportunity zones and we're raising you know, investors with capital gains to capitalize these projects, but all of our underwriting has, has nothing to do with the opportunities of benefits. That's all the gravy on top of the investment. So it really has to meet our location thesis, obviously a sponsor that's best in class for the product type they're building. And it's got to meet the timelines that are very important to us to have these projects up and operational before 2026. That's the that's the program, right? That's what everybody's racing towards. And we were having a hard time, as I mentioned, not only underwriting multifamily projects based on the returns, you know, the untrended return on cost today in today's environment is a struggle, but also the timing to get a building built, stabilized, refinanced by 2026 is getting very difficult. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I think this product type makes a lot of sense. You know, the project in Charlotte that we are invested in with Jason happens to be a forward purchase opportunity. So think of it as a pre-TCO, like the people have done in multifamily buildings. You can buy a multifamily building prior to it being put in service and still qualify for Opportunity Zone benefits. We've created the same thing for in the Charlotte development, which is a pre-TCO purchase of these townhomes. So we are actually buying units right before they're finished. We're finishing them alongside the developer you know, to make sure we're qualifying for OZ benefits. Um, and then we're putting those in service and leasing them along the way. So to us, it's it's you know it's less risk. They're into the market sooner, and they're throwing off returns quicker. So to us, it's just a perfect model for this opportunity zone you know investment today. And these projects, they aren't all out in the hinterlands. You know, when I originally thought of builds to rent, I'm thinking people are buying hundreds of acres in you know Timbuktu in Arizona because that's where everybody keeps building and building and building. These projects are both very urban. They're in mixed-use developments with, with multifamily close to us and schools, retail, business services, stadiums. I mean, they're in urban areas that are, that are neighborhoods, some walkable, close to light rail, which also meets kind of our Opportunity Zone investment thesis. And I don't want to make light, Jimmy, I'm just going to interject something for Leo's um, benefit, do. making light of, of the of the IP that went into um, the build to rent forward that Leo's referenced in Charlotte, where when you have organizations like Greenberg Traurig, who's a national law firm that leads in the expertise and compliance of opportunity zones, and then you dovetail that into Novogratic, um, that also leads in that area uh, from the compliance aspects of it to say that for those firms, this is you know the first delivered single family home project into an opportunity zone, not multifamily, not some of the others that Leo's referencing or TCO, pre-TCO, excuse me. 
So the ingenuity and, and, you know, 10 months that it took to design the structure to be compliant and all the effort that went into it is actually one of the reasons why we like Pinnacle, because um, we fancy ourselves as being um, structure gurus, so to speak. And, you know, there's never a deal that's hard. Um, it's, it's, are you a problem solver? And Pinnacle is, is a group of problem solvers. And so they saw the opportunity of being able to, to it, think about it. The issue that they have is when will the fund begin COing and begin turning cash flow? And so when you looked at the opportunity later on in the game of inserting this Charlotte project, put the fundamentals aside, this was a tough deal. And this deal took time, took, took extra funds, extra capital, extra everything to get it over the line. So it's now set the op the the opportunity. Sorry for the pun. It's given us the opportunity now to do it again and again and again. So we are forward thinkers um, in the space of BTR in order to do this opportunity zone investment. So it's been really really fascinating and neat to watch the Pinnacle team and the Trilogy team come together to do the deal. Oh, that's great. I love to hear that. A uh, couple questions uh, for each of you. We're starting to run out of time. We'll wrap up here in a few minutes. But uh, Jason, let me let me ask you this: What uh, and we've already talked about, um, I think, the answer to this question a little bit. I'm going to ask you about the biggest trends that are providing a tailwind to BTR investors. We talked about some cyclical trends with interest rates having risen as 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 much and as quickly as they have over the last year or so, making homeownership um, unaffordable for for a lot of 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 new homeowners or potential new homeowners. I think that's been a cyclical tailwind for for BTR. Um, maybe a structural tailwind is that housing shortage you mentioned, the 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 however many million it is. I, I usually like to just round it out to about five million short. Are there any other trends that are providing a tailwind for this? It's interesting. I would say the, you've actually nailed it. I mean, those are two of the largest tailwinds that are heading in to where um, some of the ultimate, sure, you've got your flexibility, you've got the the need and desire. And I would say that that, and I don't want to make light of it, but having your own backyard, having your own garage, dedicated parking, and having the pieces of what, I mean, imagine being in a home, having no responsibility for maintenance, having no responsibility for lawn, having no responsibility for any of it, but you're showing up. So we call it and liken it to apartment style living um, in a home. And so the tailwind that comes with that is, is that because of home ownership issues that, that, that are just prevalent. And by the way, we think interest rates are going to trend higher for longer to where this is going to be a tailwind that lasts not into the end of the year, not into the end of the first quarter. We see this as a second, third, maybe even as long as fourth quarter um, item, which means the more homes that we can deliver during this time um, will reap the benefit for the residences themselves. And then, uh, Leo, maybe, let, yeah, maybe I could add just to my opinion on another tailwind is we already were seeing somewhat of a movement from urban living to suburbia mm -hmm. with COVID. People wanting, you know, everybody was building, including us, smaller, efficient units, close, close to light rail, no parking. And I still think that's a needed product type for people, especially that can't get to work, you know, want to live close to work, can't afford it. So having smaller units that are more affordable. We yep. like that workforce housing model a lot, but there was that, the reason we liked garden style apartments is because a lot of people are moving. They want an office at home. They want a little more space. So they're willing to move outside of downtown to be a little further away. And we think this is just another adjunct to that. So people right. looking for more space and quality of life, a little bit more space than being on a fifth floor versus a single family home or townhome to us. We already were seeing that happening and now it's happening even more, even more. 
Great point. And, and what's your exit strategy here, Leo, at the end of uh, the, the 10 plus years? How do you get your investors their their money back and 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 make sure they take advantage of the uh, the capital gains exclusion on the back end? Yeah, really, no different than our multifamily strategy. You know, we build, we lease, we stabilize, and then put permanent financing in place. So we'll return on you know significant amount of their investment at that time in hoping to pay the tax. Right, it's everybody's goal, and these projects will be done sooner. You know, so we're feeling good about that. And then after 10 years, an exit will be a sale. We'll roll up as a, you know, a completed project. And there's groups out there today that are looking at these assets, no different than multifamily. And we think this asset class is going to continue to grow. So that that is the strategy, Jason. You see it any different, but we don't see it any no. different than multifamily capital. And these are institutional quality assets, Jimmy. So what is important is, is that you'll have a wide, wide bench of potential buyers um, from whether or not they're going into a 1031 or whether it's an institutional um, investor that you know has a series of core funds, life insurance companies, et cetera. So it's going to be a wide, wide range of potential buyers um, you know, 10 years from now. Can we predict where we're going to be? No. Um, but um, we feel very, very strongly about during that period, stabilizing good cash flow. And then outside of that on the reversion, um, you know, Leo and his team giving the, the investors the benefit you know, that they originally invested in for. Very good. Well, great insights today, gentlemen. Just to zoom out a bit before we conclude today's episode of a final question. I'm curious, given your expertise, and, and this question is mainly for Leo. I think he's my he's my real OZ expert at Pinnacle Partners. That's but right. Jason, I'm feel not, free to step in as well. Um, what do you feel are some of the more important trends, more broadly in opportunity zones in general that investors should mm. keep their eye on for the rest of the year and, and going into 2024 now too. You know, what I tell people is really no different than how we're looking at the world today. Less risk is better, you know? So all of our investments today, you know, if you're not earning, you know, significantly more than you can put into a money market or a CD, then why are you doing it, right? So all of our underwriting has has changed. So our return, yeah, the, 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 the 10 year risk free rate is now four and a half percent. So that's a pretty that's a much higher hurdle to clear than it was a year ago. Right. Exactly. So I would just strongly encourage to to push your your groups like Pinnacle on their underwriting. You know, how are they seeing the world as Jason's point? If they if, if they're showing you that interest rates are coming down early next year, you might want to question that. So make sure you're you're looking at a conservative underwriting. And I think de-risk any investment today, meaning it needs to be shovel ready with a construction loan in place or term sheets at least, uh, GMP from a GC, you know, going into projects like we have historically where you're, you know, the interest rate environment was pretty steady, you know, construction costs were holding firm. And even if they were going up, rents were kind of going up to make you look okay. I think we've got to be very careful on how we're underwriting today because the, the good news for, for groups like Pinnacle is equity is really king today. And if you've got the equity to invest, you've got a lot of choices with good sponsors like Jason and just got to make sure that we're de-risking them as much as we can, meaning we're not going to put more leverage than over 50, 55% loan to cost, where a year ago we'd probably be 60, 65%, right, Jason? So it's just a different day. And I think to us at Pinnacle, at least we're trying to less risk, you know, fewer projects with, with good sponsors like Jason that we can go along with because we believe in the model. You're good. And Jason, I don't know if you had any 
thoughts on important trends you're keeping an eye on that we sure. haven't well, already funny. covered? <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that in the last year, there are more investors um, that are giving Opportunity Zone funds like Pinnacle Partners and their series of funds, as well as direct Opportunity Zone investments. They're giving them a, a stronger look, Jimmy, hmm. because, because the next year, two years, three years were a traditional merchant build you know, buy the dirt, build it, stabilize it, sell it, that three to five year merchant build strategy that normally non-OZ investors um, typically are going into, they're now seeing that it's not as quote unquote easy to underwrite a three to five year exit. So because of that, and knowing that you might have a seven year exit, or you might have to plan for something longer because you don't know what's coming, what's happening is, is, is now everyone's saying, well, wait, if I'm going to wait to seven years, what's another three? And then getting the benefits of the OZ and then likewise having that opportunity. So it's interesting for us. It's amazing how even our site selection team of 30 deals that I'll look at over the course of the next week, one third of those will be opportunity zone, where if you looked at us a year ago, none of them. We never looked for it. So we're looking long into these investments now, which gives, I think, all the altogether more opportunity for what's going on at Pinnacle, not just for me as a sponsor, but for what Leo and Jeff and his team are doing there as well. Well said, Jason. Well, gentlemen, we've run out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights today. Before we go, Leo, where can we learn more about Pinnacle Partners? And uh, Jason, where can our audience go to learn more about Trilogy? Sure. Yeah, Leo. yeah Pinnacle is at pinnacleoz.com. And my email is leo at pinnacleoz.com. Great. Um, mine is trilogyic.com. Um, and my email address is jj at trilogyic.com. Fantastic. And uh, for our listeners and viewers out there today, we will, as always, have show notes available for today's episode. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there we'll have links to all of the resources that Leo, Jason, and I discussed on today's show. We'll make sure to link to those websites that they just gave as well. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Leo and Jason, thanks again for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can find us online at opportunitydb.com. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB by Wealth Channel. This podcast is available on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast listening platforms. Just hit that subscribe or follow button so you get all of our new episodes as we release them. And we'll be back soon with another exciting episode.